from Omtic Mind. I'm Dylan Stevens, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, Autologous Retinal Transplantation, Part 2. So maybe this is one of the hypotheses of what's happening when you transplant peripheral rods to the macular area. I'm joined again today by Dr. Tamer Mahmoud, where we finish our discussion of autologous retinal transplantation. So obviously the the outcomes in this paper were were great. I mean, even the primary versus refractory, which you mentioned, we don't really know the time scale of in all cases um, versus the Mac hole combined RRDs. You know, the visual acuity was was great afterwards, uh, the mean visual acuity at least. I want to talk about the OCT. You mentioned in your case earlier, the post-op month one OCT findings, and this one particular finding that you mentioned in the paper, the alignment of the neurosensory layers, what you called ANL. So alignment of the neurosensory layers for the listeners is exactly what it sounds like, alignment of those outer and inner inner layers. Um, And it was very interesting that it was associated with a better final visual acuity as was the you know, ellipsoid zone band reconstitution. Why do you think that is? Do you think there is a functional anatomic relationship between ANL and the visual acuity? Okay, this can be a really lengthy discussion. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to summarize as much as I can. Uh, but to help understand that, I, I would like to answer a few questions here. So you said that the visual results are good. Yeah, the visual results were very exciting, especially that we didn't exclude anyone. We included all the potential complications. And this is the initial experience for every one of those surgeons. So if that's the initial experience, we can way improve that. And you know, yes, we have 89% closure of those holes anatomically and 95% in macular retinal detachment, but I can tell you that we can achieve 100%. The stable, the field is very stable under PFO. If you move the tissue and put it in the hole, it should stay in the hole. And that's one of the great things about that procedure. For example, if you're thinking about ILM flaps or other procedures, you do the scaffold and wait for the hole to close. Here, if you close it, it's closed, it's done. But the question is, how can we improve functional outcomes? So we, we would be able to come to your question about the ANL or the alignment of the neurosensory layers. Now, when you think about a macular hole, or we think about the retinal function. It's not only about the neurosensory retina. We get function because of uh, rods and cones, neurosensory retina, but also the underlying RPE and the choriocapillaris and Brooks membrane. So all those function as one unit. We know there is a lot of genetic uh, defects in the RPE or choroid that end up with retinal dystrophy and overlying retinal degeneration, but the neurosensory retina doesn't have the genetic defect. And therefore, when you think about a macular hole, if you have a a chronic macular hole or a high myopic hole, you may have lost retinal tissue, but because it's chronic, you start losing the underlying RPE. And and then with time, you lose the underlying Brooks and choroid. So if in the future you come and say, I'm gonna get neurosensory retina, maybe neurosensory retina is not enough. Maybe you should also get choroid, or maybe you should do it early on and not wait that long, or maybe you should know better your flow chart and know which procedure which work for which hole so you don't wait that long to become a refractory macular hole and do your 
transplant early on as a primary transplant to get a better vision. Indeed, 12% of the patients in the global study ended up with 2050 or better vision. I mean, I would not have expected that from peripheral retina that is mostly rods. So if we can get that function in those atypical holes, that means what are we missing to get that macular function from the rest of the holes? Now, do I need to do it early on? Can I also add uh, 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 um, RPE? Can I also add choroid? Can we do some of the genetic studies or stem cells now can provide RPE? So there could be a combination of procedures in the future that can help better function of that neurosensory retina. Another question that you had was about um, alignment of the neurosensory layer seems more in the refractory group. Well, I wouldn't conclude that those did better because you would think that the primary group would be less chronic and may have better outcomes. Well, we don't know the duration of the macular hole in those primary cases. Remember when we were talking about the global study, we couldn't get that information. So we didn't include that information. And it is expected because, you know, great surgeons that were included in the study, why did they do, like 27% were primary macular holes. Why would a surgeon try a new procedure, uh, like an ART for a primary macular hole? they should have enough experience that other procedures failed in their hands. And this is why they chose ART. So either it was a very large chronic hole or it was a, a primary myopic staphylomatous hole or macular hole retinal detachment that they know they don't have other choices to fix it. And therefore I would consider the primary cases very similar to the refractory cases. Now, what is the role of the alignment of the neurosensory layer? So this is a new descriptive morphological term by OCT. Initially, when we were writing the manuscript, we were thinking of a different term. Instead of alignment of the neurosensory layer, we were talking about linking of the neurosensory layer. But I didn't feel that it's the appropriate term because if you specifically say linking, that means you have evidence with synapses that you have connection between the ART and the surrounding tissue. We don't have evidence. All what we have is a morphological change that we can see on an OCT where outer nuclear align with outer nuclear plexiform with plexiform and so on. Therefore, I thought that the term alignment of the neurosensory layer is more accurate to describe it. Now, we see that alignment. So how did we come up with that term and that observation? So gradually, when you put the transplant in place within the first few days, you would see amorphous tissue. That means tissue that doesn't have any specific morphology. Yes, the peripheral retina has morphology, but when you cut it and move it to the macular area, it looks initially edematous, and you don't have any differentiation of the layers. It becomes secure in place with between one and two weeks, but gradually within the first few weeks, we see that the, you start seeing the layering. The retina thickens a little bit and you start seeing ellipsoid zone, you start seeing outer nuclear, inner nuclear, and so on. What's, what was interesting also, as we started seeing that, it was interesting to see that when the tissue thickened, you can see not only outer nuclear or inner nuclear or plexiform on the graph, but you see them aligning at the same level as the surrounding host macular tissue. Ah, so how is this? Is this like what we say in 
you know, when we think about uh, macrophages, chemotaxis and so on, does that host macular tissue identifies that similar tissue and starts aligning those layers? You know, so we thought that the best approach is that morphological term alignment of the neurosensory layers. So since we see that in the transplant a few weeks, we said, okay, let's try to uh, examine all those OCTs and see the correlation between the ellipsoid zone alignment of neurosensory layers and function and anatomical success. Uh, one of the things that was very helpful in the study is that uh, examining all those OCTs were in a masked way. So although it is a retrospective study, we didn't know what the vision outcome or the functional outcomes when the OCT were examined. All the reports of the OCT were masked and we didn't know the functional outcomes. And then we looked at the correlation. So what we found is the two main factors, well, also, of course, closure of the macular hole, but also a better ellipsoid zone and alignment of the neurosensory layers correlated with better function. Why is that important? Because when you cut the neurosensory tissue as a graft, the retina is, is, is flat and it's stretched in place by the surrounding retina. Once you cut that piece of retina 360, it will shrink. When you move it to the hole, it may become smaller than the size of the hole. So it is very important to oversize by at least 25%. And currently with the intraoperative OCT even, we don't have a tool to exactly measure that size. So it's really eyeballing it and making sure you have something, a tissue that is much larger than the size of the hole. Why is that? Because when you move it to achieve good alignment of the neurosensory layer, you should avoid eccentric holes. If you put the transplant in place and it is not connected to the surrounding tissue, you will not have alignment. You, the function is not gonna be good. So we know that a better function is associated with that connection between the graft and the host tissue. What actually happens with that connection? We don't know because we don't have immunocytochemistry or immunoelectron microscopy, or yes, we have microperimetry, we have all that stuff, but. We don't know on the histopathologic basis what happens at the synapses level between those cells. But our observation is if you have oversize of the graft and you have connection all the way 360 around the graft, the more you have that, the more you have alignment, the more the function is gonna be better. One other thing that I think is very exciting and also you know, a little bit different from alignment of the neurosensory layers uh, is uh, scotomas. And we discussed that in the paper, but this is one of the things that we observed after the transplant. And I remember the first patient that I did in Michigan, uh, her vision, she had two ILM surgeries before, a flap and an ILM peel. She was uh, not a high myope, but the whole, the minimum linear diameter was more than a thousand microns. I did a transplant, looked really good. She comes at three months and she says, I have never seen as good as I see now for the last five years. And I look at her vision, 2100. I look at the last five years, she was 2200 and 2400 on many visits. I mean, I wouldn't consider that as an improvement. I mean, it, I mean, you're testing vision and the clinic patient walks in 2100, 2200, 2400, really? Is that an improvement? On ATDRS chart, I wouldn't say that's an improvement. So I ask her, like, can you describe to me? What do you mean? because I see visions that are very similar to what you have now. 
Yes, there might be one line difference, but I wouldn't consider that much improvement. If I push you, I may get that. So, so she said that before the procedure, before closing the hole, she had a big black spot in the center of her vision where the macular hole is. After the procedure, it gradually became gray and then it faded. She doesn't have the scotoma anymore. So this is how I explain this. And there might be more explanation in the future, but as we understand more, our optic nerve is a scotoma. So does the patient see the scotoma from the optic nerve? No. So it is a negative scotoma. If you plot the optic nerve on a visual field, it will be a scotoma, but it is a negative scotoma that the patient doesn't, doesn't visualize. She had a positive scotoma. She had a scotoma that you can see on the visual field in the macular area, and that it represents a black spot. So she can see that scotoma. It's a positive scotoma. What happens when the macular hole closed, then there is alignment of the neurosensory layers. And some of it may be at the level of the ganglion cells, increasing her receptive field, changing the positive scotoma into a negative scotoma. So now she does not see the black spot. So what? No, it's a huge that she doesn't see. So even patients that have post-op similar ETDRS vision or Snellen vision, they are very happy. Why? Because their positive scotoma changed to a negative scotoma. What does this mean? So... You know, I pushed her more and she says, before the surgery, if I want to see well out of my good eye, I always had to close the eye with the macular hole because that black spot affects my binocular vision. After the surgery, she didn't have to do that anymore because she doesn't have a scotoma. So she's very happy functioning out of both eyes at different distances. And this is something that we have to research more and understand more about. Very interesting, these sort of uh, subjective uh, visual improvements that the patients may, may perceive that we may miss, like you mentioned on simple ETDRS visual acuity testing. Uh, I do want to touch on something that you mentioned earlier. Taking a peripheral graph is, you know, by design of the retina, going to give us a graft with a higher concentration of rods than are normally present in the fovea and in the macula. Do you think that that's going to manifest for the patient in any way? Do you find that to be a potential limitation of their eventual visual acuity? What do you feel about that? A great question. And this will take us back to the question that you asked about where to harvest the graft from. So we know that peripheral retina definitely has more rods. So let's look now at the hypothesis. Remember when I said there are so many, so much basic science that was done for the last 20 years. Now, what does the peripheral retina has that the central macular area doesn't have? Or how can it help? Let's focus on rods first. So one of the hypotheses is called ectopic or adaptive synaptogenesis. So I had a chance during my PhD working with Fulton Wong to work on a retinitis pigmentosa autosomal dominant model of RP. So what happens in retinitis pigmentosa when the genetic defect is in the rods, rhodopsin? The rods die, but road bipolar cells don't die. They make ectopic synapses to the cones. So either trying to survive, or maybe this is one of the hypotheses why later on cones die. 
But at the same time, uh, at the Max Planck Institute in Germany, they had a cone model of degeneration. And when the cones die, cone bipolar cells don't die. They make ectopic synapses to the road bipolar cells. And gradually, roads change morphology to cones. Ah, so maybe this is one of the hypotheses of what's happening when you transplant peripheral rods to the macular area. Maybe some of them make connections to the cone bipolar cells at the edges of the grafts and start changing morphology. And maybe this is why that graft gradually thickens and develops outer layers. So this is one of the hypotheses, ectopic synaptogenesis. The second one is the glu glucose transport hypothesis. So uh, Henry Kaplan, uh, he's the chairman at uh, Louisville, and he had an animal model, a, a porcine model of uh, re retinal degeneration. And they found that in that model, if they transplant stem cells that can differentiate into rods, they can recover function of the cones. It seems that the cones to survive, they need a glucose transport mechanism from the rods. And we know that the macular area have a lot of rods too. So if you have a macular hole and you have a lot of loss of some of those rods, then the cones on the edge are not supported enough. And if you bring a piece of retinal tissue from the periphery that have rods, this may help additional to the ectopic synaptogenesis survival of some of the cones at the edge that may help better function. And maybe this is why, because of those two hypotheses, when we did microperimetry, yes, we can see increased sensitivity over the center of the transplant, but we did see significant increase of sensitivity at the edges of the transplant. So this might be related to the glucose transport hypothesis and the ectopic synaptogenesis. The third hypothesis is Mueller cells. So peripheral Mueller cells are different than macular Mueller cells. And one of the hypotheses, uh, there was multiple animal models where they showed that if you put those Mueller peripheral cells under stress, like for example, retinal detachment, the, you may push them to differentiate into stem cells for photoreceptors. Therefore, if you have someone with a peripheral retinal detachment or someone with a stressed retina because of the macular hole, maybe this will push those peripheral Mueller cells into differentiating and being primed to differentiate into stem cells. And if we go in and move that peripheral retina to the macular hole, we already have our autologous stem cells that, can, that already are differentiated into rods and cones. So that's another hypothesis. There are other hypotheses that were published about growth factors, material transfer, cell migration. So I think it is a combination of all those hypotheses. We don't know which one has the upper hand, but I think all those play a role in the autologous retinal transplant. I think time will tell uh, what the eventual um, real biomechanical function is that allows for that transformation. But I think we just need more, more information like you mentioned. Uh, can you briefly talk about the use of amniotic membranes for the treatment of macular holes? There is some information out there about that. And obviously, uh, amniotic membranes have been used uh, to significant uh, effect in anterior segment surgeries. Um, but how do you feel about their use in macular hole repair? So uh, a funny story is 
the same day we did our first autologous retinal transplant, just before we do it, we thought of getting an amniotic membrane and putting it in the eye for the macular hole. And we did not do it because of the medical legal liability. You know, you know, cutting a piece of retina, getting a retinal break and covering it is almost similar to ILM. You wouldn't have any problem. And I talked to the patient, the patient was under MAC and I said, this is what we're doing. And, you know, we pushed it a little bit, not, uh, you know, we were, you know, excited about doing something to close the hole, but it was okay to do that. But getting an amniotic membrane back then without a consent form, knowing what happens to an amniotic membrane inside the eye wasn't a good idea. And since we succeeded with the autologous transplant, then we didn't do the amniotic membrane back then. But Stan Orizu developed the idea of the amniotic membrane for macular holes. And back then we didn't have those options. And I think it's very exciting, the field of macular hole surgery, because even beside the amniotic, we have so many other options now that people are thinking about. And uh, I think within the next few years, we're gonna know more and more which procedure is better for which type of hole. I have some issues with the amniotic membrane that not the idea per se, but the tips and tricks because procedure has to improve so we can get better outcomes. Uh, number one, when uh, Stan Orizo developed the idea of the amniotic uh, membrane transplant, he put it in the subretinal space. When you have a hole, although it looks like a big hole, it's not easy to dissect the subretinal space because those chronic holes, it is very adherent, the RPE to the neurosensory retina at the edge. So you have to dissect that and try to push that amniotic membrane in the subretinal space. What we know from the transplant is that we are getting great function at the edge of the transplant. And those are the surviving cones at the edge of the macular hole that we may get some great function of. So if you try to dissect that area with the amniotic membrane, maybe you are destroying some of those cells and it may limit your function. So although the amniotic membrane as a scaffold is helping you to close the hole, so you can end up with a good anatomical outcome in few months once the hole is closed, but you already have less than expected function because of what you did during the procedure to those cone cells. And it's not easy to do it. The second is some groups have tried, instead of putting it in the subretinal space, they put it in the preretinal space, but many had dislocation of the graft. One other issue of putting in the subretinal space is that when you look at those patients at one year and two years now, the amniotic membrane did not go away. So if you have someone with very thin retina and you put tissue, yes, the growth factors released from the amniotic tissue may help close the hole, but may over time it may reduce the diffusion of nutrients and oxygenation from the underlying choroid and brooks. And therefore, Long-term, you may get atrophy and loss of function and so on. So that's my concern with the amniotic membrane as a tissue that doesn't go away at this stage. But, you know, with more research, we will understand more. Now, in the beginning of this, uh, in this talk we're having, uh, you discussed your sort of flow chart for selecting a patient for ART versus pars plantar vitrectomy, what have you. Um, namely because, not only because, but majority because the macular holes in those ART cases are very, very large. Um, moving forward as ART becomes more prevalent, are there any other things that you factor in when you select a patient or you will select a patient for ART? 
So I think now that we have more experience with the ART and more surgeons are doing it, um, the selection criteria is less stringent nowadays. We know what holes will fail initially, so we are more aggressive at treating those holes with transplant and other procedures. Uh, I mean, I do at least two cases a month now. And I try not to have those patients come all the way from other states. And if there is a retina surgeons in town that I know or they talk to me, I try to convince them to do it. I mean, all the steps are easy. We go through the steps and they do it. So I talk to at least four or five every month and they do it locally nowadays. And even if the patient wants to come all the way here and have it, then I do it and at least leave the PFO and have them fly out and have the PFO uh, taken out locally. Uh, so I see more and more being done uh, every month now. And like I said in my flowchart initially, anything larger than 650, I used to do it for only 1,000, 2,000 and so on. For me, anything more than 650, I just go for the transplant nowadays. And uh, because we have more experience how to keep it in place, better function, when to remove the PFO and so on, we are getting better experience in it. We're getting better function. And it is not an unusual procedure uh, anymore. I mean, I hear, you know, I, uh, you know, with the pandemic, a lot of Zoom functions and so on. And I see people like coming and presenting their cases and I don't even know them. They never talk to me, but local surgeons teach others to do it. It's being taught in many fellowships and so on. And although those are atypical or unusual holes that we see, but everyone in the community, whether optometrists or ophthalmologists are aware now of those types of techniques and they refer those patients. I think initially when I did the first one at Duke and I went to an optometrist meeting, uh, giving you know uh, educational talks and they were asking, us like, we have many of those in our clinic. We never even refer them. It's like, now we know. So I think more awareness now and with the publications and so on, more are aware of it and they don't observe anymore. And to respond to one of the questions that you had initially, what I like about those procedures and what we did in the global study is at least make a statement that it is not okay to follow an open hole anymore. Patients can improve their scotoma, even if the vision is about the same, their scotoma can can be reduced and they can function much better. So having a failed hole or someone that never had holes for years, had holes for years, you know, you have to refer those patients. Either you know how to do it or refer those patients so that someone can do it. I mean, I have patients with Alport syndrome, very large holes, more than a thousand microns for more than 20 years, count fingers vision, and now 2100, 2060 vision. And they never thought that they could function again or work again. So definitely I would consider a procedure for any of those. I think we're doing more and more every day. And what I like is that the retina community, there are so many smart surgeons and you know, you bring an idea, you sit in a conference and you hear great tips and tricks. This is what worked for me. This is what I do. And some of them don't have the resources that we have in the US. They cannot use PFO. So they come up with new ideas, how to make it stay in place, how to adjust one edge in the subretinal space. And I, I love to hear those ideas. Well, the, the future certainly seems bright for the field of ART. It seems like there's a lot of surgeons that are finding out that, you know, with their training in retina surgery, they're able to do it. And, you know, they're getting trained by others that you've trained. And it's really, really wonderful to hear. Dr. Mahmoud, I just wanted to thank you for your time, um, for your effort here. All the information that you gave is, is great for me, great for the listeners. Um, it's really been a, a pleasure talking with you. 
Thank you very much. Dr. Tamer Mahmoud's work on educating other retinal specialists about autologous retinal transplantation continues at the Beaumont Eye Institute and Associated Retinal Consultants of Royal Oak, Michigan. You can check out Dr. Mahmoud's paper, Autologous Retinal Transplantation for Primary and Refractory Macular Holes and Macular Hole Retinal Detachments in the May 2021 edition of Ophthalmology. This interview and those before it are meant to be part of a conversation in which you participate. If you have any questions or comments for Dr. Mahmoud or any of our prior guests, please reach out to the podcast at josh at onticmind.com. As Seen From Here is a production of Ontic Mind Incorporated. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Dylan Stevens.